The Fed's verdict is in. Are U.S. banks braced for the worst? This is Industry Focus. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Christine Hargis, and I've got the Motley Fool's Senior Banking Specialist, John Maxfield, on the line. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot, Christine. So on last week's episode, we talked about the Fed's stress tests, uh, the first round of tests, as a reminder, examined the ability of the 31 biggest financial institutions overseen by the Fed to withstand a hypothetical downturn of the economy, given their current balance sheets and levels of returning capital to shareholders. Results from that test came out on March 4th, and all the banks passed. Then there was the second round of tests, which we alluded to last time, and have happened in the, the week in between. And those were the, the CCAR tests, which stands for Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review. So that ran the banks through an analysis of a hypothetically severely adverse economic downturn defined in a whole bunch of different ways. And uh, it took into consideration the bank's submitted plans for returning their capital to shareholders. So basically, it's the moment of truth for whether or not banks will be allowed to proceed with their planned dividend increases and share buyback programs. So I'm thinking, let's start by talking about the banks that had poor performance and then shift over to those who are celebrating good news. Sound good? That, that sounds great. Great. So do you want to kick off... Um, Let's talk uh, first about Deutsche Bank and Santander Holdings. So Deutsche Bank and, and uh, Santander, they were both. So this is the first time they had taken part in the in the annual Federal Federal Reserve Administrator stress test, and these are both uh, international banks. And so the only portion of these large international conglomerates that was actually tested by the Federal Reserve were their United States-based operations. Um, which are relatively small in the whole scheme of things uh, when it comes to those banks. But both of those banks, um, quote-unquote, failed the stress test this year. And the reason wasn't for quantitative um, reasons, that is. It wasn't because in the Federal Reserve's hypothetical, severely adverse economic scenario, it wasn't that their capital levels fell too low, it was that the Federal Reserve, in the second kind of step of the stress test, the CCAR um, step, the Federal Reserve found that their capital planning processes were deficient. So, they, so when, the, when these banks were figuring out you know, how to determine how much capital they should distribute to shareholders or when the economy goes down, what would happen to their capital base, um, the Fed determined that the banks didn't have as good of a grasp on making those projections as they should. And do you think that that qualitative analysis is just as important as the quantitative verdict? I mean, one could argue, quite frankly, that the qualitative aspect is much more important, right? Because one of the things we know, and we've seen you know, a lot of studies on this, a lot of conversations um, in the behavioral finance uh, realm on this, one of the things we know is that making concrete projections is always somewhat of a fool's errand because you, you just don't know what the future is going to look like. So the actual numbers are, you know, you should always be suspect about precise figures um, that come in the form of projections. So studying the actual process uh, through which those numbers come about 
is probably actually a better uh, a better reflection on how a bank will do um, in like a severely adverse economic uh, situation like the Federal Reserve um, projected in the stress test. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So let's talk about another bank that uh, had orders from the Fed to address certain weaknesses in its capital planning process. So those those qualitative grounds again. So Bank of America, what happened there? So Bank of America was a very similar situation. So in the first round of the stress test, which just tested quantitatively whether or not the banks would have enough capital to survive an economic downturn akin to the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009, the Federal Reserve determined that Bank of America would have enough capital to pass that. But then when the Fed came in a week later and when they released the results of the CCAR um, step in the analysis last week on the 11th, they determined that, just like uh, Deutsche Bank and Santander, that Bank of America had problems with its actual capital planning process. So, again, it was a qualitative uh, – uh, it wasn't a rejection. It was more of kind of a, a conditional approval that Bank of America can go forward with its capital plans, which, by the way, were relatively small compared to many of the other banks. Like, they didn't increase their dividend. I think they just had a share repurchase program of – if, if my memory serves me right, it was $4 billion, which is much, much less than um, J.P. Morgan Chase, and more specifically Citigroup, because Citigroup and Bank of America had relatively similar situations in the financial crisis. So Bank of America, they, they had a relatively small uh, uptick, and one can only, well, I mean, I think it's probably safe to assume that one of the reasons that they asked for so little increase was probably related to feedback they had gotten from the Federal Reserve earlier on in the process related to the qualitative aspect um, of their capital planning process. And that kind of seems like the whole point of having this situation happen in two rounds. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. So the first round is just to see what would happen to their capital, you know, if their current capital plans um, don't, don't change. The second round is to see what would happen to their capital if their projected uh, capital returns for 2015 or for the year ahead um, were taken into consideration. All right. Uh, great. So let's move on a little bit, uh, talk about some more different institutions. Uh, tell me what went on with J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. Seemed like they kind of were in a, a similar situation. Yeah, so J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs, this is an interesting group because these are all, well, maybe let's take Morgan Stanley out of the equation for a second. But when you look at J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, I mean, these are literally – um, two of the best, not only financial companies in the United States, but companies overall. I mean, these are just phenomenally run institutions, and they have their choice of the top talent in the country at any given year uh, from the top universities. So it was, it was somewhat surprising to see that these guys, they didn't get rejected out and out, but between in that week between the first round of the stress test in the second round of the stress test, what they had to do is they had to resubmit their plans about how much capital they're going to return to shareholders over the next year. And they had to do that because in each of those cases, those banks came perilously close to dropping below the regulatory minimum capital threshold um, that they need for a variety of capital ratios that the Federal Reserve uses to ascertain whether or not the bank's have enough money to absorb a crisis akin to financial crisis. 
So they came back in because if they had kept their original capital return proposals for 2015 in place, that would have dipped them below that regulatory minimum. So all three of those banks had to come back in, resubmit lower, less ambitious capital plans in order to make it past uh, the CCAR step in the analysis. Now, the question is, why did they have problems? And the answer to that is, this year the Fed paid particularly close attention to the banks that have large trading and counterparty operations. And those are the those are your, your traditional, I guess not traditional anymore after the financial crisis, but those are your, your, when you think of your investment banking operations, those are the banks that that hit. So because the Federal Reserve looks so closely at that, they assess much larger potential damages in the event of a crisis than those banks had projected for themselves. Right. And in, in that special test, just for this uh, specific trade-focused scenario, those three banks, your, your J.P. Morgan, Goldman, and Morgan Stanley, they lost a projected $56 billion combined just in this, this uh, loan loss associated with the, the trading operations test. So super interesting there. That's right. And, and, and you have to keep in mind that that $56 billion split between those three banks was on top of, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but on, on top of tens of billions of dollars in projected loan losses. So mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan, so $55 billion alone there. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it, it was that trading loss, these trading losses at each of these firms that kind of tipped them over, uh, if you will, and made them have to be a little bit less ambitious with, with how much capital they're going to take off their balance sheet and give to their shareholders. Right. So let's move on to good news. Uh, th- tell me about Citigroup. Yeah, so Citigroup, <laughs> Citigroup is great news. So Citigroup was the one major too-big-to-fail bank, if you will, left from the financial crisis that hadn't been given approval to increase its dividend. And this is something that has weighed on Citigroup and its executives for a number of years now. In fact, many people think that its rejection to increase its dividend, I think it was three or four years ago, was what led to the ouster of its former CEO, Vikram Pandit. So a lot of people were speculating that its current CEO, Michael Corbett, was actually be either he would either resign or be fired in the event that um, Citigroup didn't pass the stress test this time. Fortunately, they did pass. The reason, one of the reasons they passed is that over the last year, they've spent something like $180 million dedicated to just fixing and updating their capital planning process in order to pass the Federal Reserve stress test. And Citigroup, if you look at their results in that first round of the stress test, what you see is that they have some of the highest, one of the highest tier one common cap ratios in the industry even assuming that the economy goes through a dramatic downturn, um, similar to 2008 and 2009. So if you, you think about how far City has come from the financial crisis, because it was, it was uh, clearly the worst performing bank in that regard. You can just you can see that, uh, or you can get a, an idea for how badly uh, managed it was by just looking at a, a a, a, a 10-year stock chart of its stock. I think its stock is still down something like 90% from, from 2006. So the fact that it's finally got to go ahead to increase its dividend and to buy back some shares is certainly a huge relief for both Citigroup shareholders uh, and for its management team. Yeah, I'm sure Michael Corbett is finally getting a good night of sleep after all of this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. 
I'm sure that um, a lot of those guys had had a had quite a weekend this past yeah, weekend. Really. So um, with this uh, approval, Citigroup uh, was uh, approved for a pretty sizable share buyback program of $7.8 billion. Um, And so some have been voicing the opinion that they would rather have seen a bigger dividend increase than such a big buyback program. What's your take on this? Well, my take on this, so first of all, as a general rule, Citigroup has a history of being very, very bad when it comes to returning capital shareholders. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you look at uh, maybe the four or five years before the financial crisis, it it bought back something like 40 to $50 billion worth of its stock, and that just so happened to be about how much they needed to make it through the financial crisis. So they expended all their ammo before the crisis when they didn't need it, buying back all the stock, and then came in and then diluted their shareholders egregiously during the financial crisis to raise capital. So, so they're not very good at these decisions. However, in the most recent, right now, if you're going to return capital to shareholders and you're the executive of Citigroup, right now definitely the right way to do so is to do it via share buybacks as opposed to dividends. And I say that for the simple reason that Citigroup shares are still trading for a 20% discount to book value. So what that means is that Citigroup can come in and pay um, basically 80 cents on the dollar to buy back all of their shares, which is then immediately accretive to the current owners of Citigroup's Citigroup shares. So the fact that they only increase their dividend by, I think, 4 cents a share, while that may be a small increase, that massive 7.8 or 7.6 or 7.8 billion dollar share buyback should be a big boost to Citigroup shareholders. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the other aspect of that is that the Fed looks at these buyback programs just more favorably in general because they're easier to stop. It's not quite as, as risky of a, a commitment. That's exactly right. So if you have a bank or any financial institution or any company for that matter, and, and it cuts its dividend, that communicates very clearly to the shareholders that something is amiss at that bank or at that company. Share, ba- share buybacks are, are, are totally different. A company can shut off their share buyback pro- program immediately, and quite frankly, most people won't even know that they did so until the next quarter of the results are filed with the SEC. So it's something that it's a lot easier for banks to stop doing, and that's why the Fed likes it uh, compared to dividends. Mm-hmm. So something that we see time and time again is that success in investing in financials is really about limiting the downside for when the economy turns for the worst, which it inevitably will. So having such a robust look at a hypothetical set of adverse conditions is really important for understanding what's going on with these institutions, as well as what investors can expect going forward. So, of course, no one can predict the future, but the results from the Fed's stress tests allow us to make better informed decisions. So, listeners, if you're looking for follow-up on Citigroup, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, or any of the other banks that we mentioned today, make sure to check out our coverage on Fool.com for more analysis from John and our other analysts. Uh, John, thanks so much for your time today. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.